0: I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. We love these words that Martin Luther King spoke in his famous speech. We love to repeat them and hang them on plaques and show how much we believe in them with pictures of children of all colors holding hands. And we do believe in them. We do want them to be true. We want to live up to that beautiful dream that King shared with us. The wanting, though, is the easy part. It's the living that's hard. This year, for our annual Martin Luther King Day celebration, I wanted to focus on King's dream for his children and to pose the question to myself and to all of us, How are we doing with that dream? How are we doing for our own children, for King's grandchildren, for the children of our congregational community, and the children of our neighborhood and our city and our world? I won't spend a lot of time going over statistics with you. I'll just say the statistics are there and they're not great. This country still faces a significant achievement gap among children of different races. Schools remain largely segregated. Children still choose white dolls over black dolls. You can look online for a heartbreaking study about that, a a redo of the study from the 60s, done just in the last few years. The question, I think, is not so much whether our country continues to struggle with racism, but what we are doing about it. Because here is my assumption, or maybe my faith statement. We can do something. We have the power to change our own hearts and minds. And we have the power to change the hearts and minds of the people we love, the people we work with, the people we parent. In a society where it is not possible to escape the racism that seeps into our cultural context, we can still take a stand. That stand, though, often looks less like a beautiful speech to a huge crowd of people and more like a messy, sometimes confusing journey through life, trying to make decisions that support our values, trying to teach by example, trying to talk about what we see around us. It has a lot of mistakes in it, that journey, but the most important thing, I think, is that we keep traveling it. My journey in anti-racist parenting really just began. Although my daughter is three years old, she first remarked that people had different skin colors about two months ago. Before that, she identified people's color by the shirt they were wearing, so people were usually purple or pink. We are exploring and learning together, and most of all, we're talking about it. But knowing that two months isn't exactly a wealth of experience, I've asked some friends to help me this morning. So today, we have three folks from West who will be sharing a part of their journey with you. None of them has the answers, but they're all keeping on with the struggle. And they're all in different places in that journey, having traveled it in different ways over different years. I also want to recommend some reading to you, whether you are a parent of a child or have children in your lives in any way, as a teacher, an aunt, a grandmother, a friend. One is a list that we have here at West, prepared by one of our members, Mary Bauer, of children's books that approach difference well. You can pick it up at the connections table after platform service. Another is a book I discovered recently called 40 Ways to Raise a Non-Racist Child, written by two Washington Post reporters, Barbara Mathias and Marianne French. It's a straightforward, approachable book that looks at the real issues of race and racism that we struggle with each day. It may be a helpful guidebook to you on your journey. It also presents the work in a framework that fits with our own philosophy here at the Ethical Society. The authors wrote this. Some of the most thoughtful and effective parents we interviewed for this book are not exceedingly religious but talk in nearly sacred terms about their approach to parenting. They are deeply committed to guiding principles that vary in emphasis but that all could be considered golden rules. As our congregation explores this month the theme of fairness and equality through the story of the golden rule, which we shared together on January 2nd, it seems like the right time to hear our own voices, to hear the sacred terms we use as we try to raise a community of children. It is my pleasure then to introduce our three speakers this morning. All have raised or are raising their children in the West Sunday School. First, we'll hear from Zee Beams, who has been a member for two years with her husband, Jonathan, and their four children. Then we'll hear from Julie Drizen, a member for 12 years with her wife, Ellen, and their two children. And finally, Sunday School Director Peggy Gates, a member for 16 years who raised her two children here with her husband, Richard. I commend their wisdom to you as they share their journey.
1: Good morning. I'm Z, and um, <clears throat> when Amanda first asked me to talk about anti-racist parenting specifically because our two older children, Ada and Sam, had been noted to have a sophisticated understanding of race and culture, I was, of course, flattered, but more importantly, I was confounded. Um, while we certainly spend a lot of energy on mindful nutrition and peaceful communication and empowered media consumption, I think it's safe to say that Jonathan and I don't intentionally do a lot of anti-racist parenting. Um, we, we do probably more pro-something, and we'll, we'll kind of investigate that as I'm talking. But I love to talk, especially in front of groups of people, so of course I was happy to participate. Um, <laughs> So my first bit of research on the topic was actually to ask Peggy what kinds of thoughts Ada and Sam had shared at West's school. And I didn't get a lot of specifics there, so then I asked Ada if they had talked about racism at West, and if so, what kinds of discussions had they had? Ada replied, I don't know. I guess I just usually say it's wrong to treat people differently because of the way they look. Okay, definitely not one of our parenting mantras, but clearly I'm glad that us most somewhere along the way. A few days later, I asked Sam if his West classes had ever talked about racism. His response, and we need a drum roll here, huh? What's racism? (laughs) So in a gross oversimplification, I attempted an explanation. Well, it's when people are systematically treated differently because of their skin color or ethnicity or the way they look or where they were born. His response, oh, that's stupid. Can you sleep in my room tonight? (laughs) And then I started thinking, okay, these kids have parents who both have a different skin color. We don't talk about it a lot as a family, and when J.B. and I have cultural differences, we usually discuss them privately, and I doubt the kids have ever heard us refer to any of our disagreements as rooted specifically in our race or ethnicity. We live in a house with a total of nine people, each of whom I think it's fair to say have a different skin color. My dad is completely lacking in melanin after having acquired the disease that Michael Jackson claimed to have had, and my mom is a few shades darker than I am. On an even more macro level, their schools are pretty racially, if not socioeconomically, diverse. In my medical practice, I estimate I have at least as many biracial families as I have single race families. And as an indication of the population in Howard County, I care for families from Brazil to Sudan to Mongolia to Sri Lanka to Sweden. Certainly, I went around singing Barack Obama songs for weeks in 2008 and we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday with a family service project every year. And if ever one of my daughters says to me, Mom, I love you even though you're brown, or during my mother's recent six-week sojourn to Pakistan, one of them said, Mom, you're the only brown person living here, we take the opportunity to point out that my skin color doesn't make me think any differently or love any differently. But I'm not sure that's why my son needs me to define the term racism. We have made a lot of our macro level choices in terms of where we live, what we do, where the kids go to school, with some focus on ensuring a diversity of experience. Uh, but on a micro level, though race and race issues are definitely secondary to education, compassion, and hard work. So what is anti-racist parenting, ala la Z and Jonathan Beams? Well, we went to a very liberal college in the 90s, which means we came of age intellectually during the PC revolution, which means we're exquisitely attuned to how language and other symbolologies define and then represent our epistemologies. It's okay to chuckle. <laughs> um, so at a very micro level, I suspect that our simple mindfulness about the words we use to describe people, situations, foods, etc., translate into some sort of anti-racist parent speak. But when I really dug down to figure it out, how have we ensured that our children grow up treating all beings equally? I thought about what I see as the three essential elements of anti-racism, and I came up with compassion understanding, and commitment. If that sounds familiar, it should. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. And this I have intentionally incorporated into my parenting manifold, not just by being part of the Washington Ethical Society. Long before we discovered this community, our focus has been demanding of ourselves and our family compassion for all beings, humans the world over, non-human animals, even insects. The other night, Jonathan was about to flush a stink bug down the toilet and Elsa said, "Ah, I wish we could make friends with the stink bugs. (laughs) Both Jonathan and I have nurtured in our family an absolute adoration of the living world. Additionally, we insist on constant learning, curiosity, questioning, and secular humanism. The kids may not have heard me talk explicitly about racism or anti-racism, but they have watched Jonathan and I build a life focused on science and service. Certainly one must consciously confront our own tendencies towards forms of racism, but ultimately instead of working against racism, what seems to be working all right for us thus far is working for secularism and ethical culture. I suspect we'll face more concrete challenges as our children grow, and for guidance, I expect to turn to my ethical culture principles and community.
2: Should have gotten those bifocals. (laughs) Every person is, in many respects, like all other people, like some other people, like no other person. You may have seen this saying on a small poster hanging here at WES. It's always resonated with me on a very deep level. And it's something I think about in raising my own children in a world where they themselves are so very, very different from most. As Jewish, humanist, vegetarian kids who happen to have lesbian atheist moms. (laughs) Aside from these labels, and the identities they represent, we always reinforce to our daughters that they can make friends anywhere and that fundamentally they are like all other children and that all other children are just like them too, the same and different at the same time. Over the years, I've tried to spark and nurture Ruby and Jasper's interest in diversity in our immediate community and around the world. We've gone to countless museums and concerts and children's theater and festivals and other events and we've read books that expose them to African American, Latino, Asian American and other cultures. But fostering appreciative awareness and cultural literacy is not enough. Being an anti-racist parent means confronting my own racism so that my kids might have a better chance at inheriting or creating a more just and loving world. So here comes the confession. When it came for Ruby to start kindergarten, I faced what I considered a spiritual challenge. In fact, I even called up Don Montagna and asked to talk to him. He was the senior leader here at West at the time to help me work it through. Both of my parents were public school teachers. I went to public schools, and frankly, I live and breathe an unshakable conviction that public equals good public transportation, public libraries, public radio, public television, and of course, public education. But our neighborhood school had a reputation for being iffy. I didn't really know this to be the fact, but I did know that at East Silver Spring Elementary, the majority were students of color, many from working poor families who recently emigrated from Africa, Asia, and Latin America, for whom English was a second language. Only about 20% of the kids at ESS were white, while at neighboring Tacoma Elementary, that number was more like 50%. Now, my discomfort with this was hard to admit, and it still is today, because it brings up my own family's history. I went to kindergarten and first grade at a nearly all-black school in Philadelphia. In 1970, my parents were one of the last white families to leave their beloved Winfield neighborhood for suburban Broomall, Pennsylvania. They moved, they said, because they wanted a better education for me and my siblings. Education was our family's religion. But in boring white Broomall, the only black person I ever saw was Virginia Rochester the barely-literate older woman who cleaned my parents' house my whole childhood. Now, back to my chosen home, Silver Spring, a community we chose for its diversity. Clearly, the racial makeup of the student population at ESS made me worry that Ruby would get an inferior education. Was this an irrational fear? Was I being racist? Public education is supposed to be the great equalizer. But isn't part of the American story that despite Brown versus Board of Education, schools are still largely segregated by race and economics, and that separate is still unequal? So back to my spiritual dilemma. Private school, out of the question. I didn't want my kids to be elitists, even though in my heart I myself was being an elitist. I wanted my children to grow up in the real world, but clearly, I wasn't ready for that real world. I was having what sociologist Gunnar Myrtle called the American dilemma, defined as the conflict between creed and conduct. Well, it turned out that Ruby didn't wind up at ESS after all. She got a winning lottery ticket into the Spanish immersion program at Rock Creek Forest, a school with its own but different diversity challenges and I was thrilled that my kids would have a fighting chance to become bilingual, which I saw as, a key, as key to expanding their cultural horizons and their opportunity in our changing America. Now in second grade, Jasper's Spanish is almost better than mine, and Ruby now goes to Tacoma Park Middle School, where she's making friends with many of the children she would have met at East Silver Spring Elementary. And these days, when I hear other local parents fretting about ESS, I tell them that my friend, Kristen, and her daughter, Maya, had a terrific experience there with excellent teachers and administrators. And I offer to put them in touch with her to get the truth from someone who actually lived it. Now, I want to turn for a moment from the adult worries that I harbor to the world of children, of play and imagination. I want to talk about dolls. As Amanda mentioned earlier, we've all seen the disturbing and depressing research over many decades about black children preferring white dolls. Well, a few years ago, Ruby was introduced to American girls. Now, if you're not familiar with this booming capitalist enterprise, for about $100, your daughter can get a so-called just-like-me doll that has skin tones and hair just like her own, and for even more money, she can buy matching outfits for her and her doll. And if you go to any of the eight bustling American Girl stores around the country, you can bring your doll to a salon to have her hair styled, her ears pierced, or even to get a facial. I'm not kidding. (laughs) American Girl also publishes some very well-written historical fiction books that provide a window into what it might have been like to be a girl during different periods of US history. Felicity is an adolescent during the American Revolution, Kid is growing up during the Great Depression, and Molly's father is fighting in World War II. One of the newer historical dolls is this very groovy bell-bottom and dashiki-wearing flower child of the 1970s named Julie. Well, in third grade, Ruby had read most of these books, including the series about Josefina, the Mexican-American girl, and Kaya, the Nez Perce girl. And one summer vacation, we took with us to the beach the books on tape about Addie, which tells the story of an African-American girl who escapes from slavery and is reunited with her family in Philadelphia. Together, we listened for hours to Addie's story, which was beautifully read by one actress who did all of the voices and all of the parts, and it was truly a moving experience, and we all cried. Now, Addie wasn't a perfect girl, but she was courageous and she was deeply ethical. And I was relieved that that Ruby, a voracious reader, would first really learn about the painful history of slavery by feeling connected to a character just like herself. But I also wondered and worried that after hearing Addie's story, would Ruby see African-Americans differently now? Would slavery come to mind when she saw someone with dark brown skin? Would she now begin to think of black people as victims instead of as individuals or as equals. Facing the truth always has some consequences. The following year, Ruby and some school friends formed an American Girl Club. Each family hosted an event focused on one of the historical characters, and we chose Addie. We made paper hats like the one that Addie wore and cowrie shell necklaces just like Addie's good luck charm. And I taught the girls songs like Wade in the Water and we talked about abolitionists, the Underground Railroad, and the inspiring bravery of those who took great risks for freedom, the American heroes. Since then, Ruby and Jasper have inherited a ridiculous number of hand-me-down American girl dolls from their babysitter, including Addie, (laughs) Last last winter, we took our girls on their first visit to Manhattan. We took them to Broadway, to MoMA, Central Park, Times Square, Rockefeller Center, Zabars. Believe it or not, the highlight for them was their visit to the American Girl Score. (laughs) Where did I go wrong, I thought. Ruby was intent on spending her own money, nearly all of her savings, on acquiring yet another American Girl doll. The one doll she had long coveted was going out of production and wouldn't be available ever again after the new year, except, of course, on eBay. (laughs) To me, the purchase seemed excessive, a waste of money. How many dolls is enough already? wouldn't she rather buy a heifer for a family in India? (laughs) But I decided to zip my lips and let Ruby wrestle with the decision and make up her own mind. Ruby joyfully and proudly left the American Girl Store with Sonali, a beautiful South Asian doll with dark brown skin and long brown black hair. And I have to admit that in my heart, I felt
3: proud. Good morning. We honor the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. For he had held our nation accountable for delivering on the promise of freedom and justice for all. A promise we struggle still to deliver. Who am I and what qualifies me to speak on this hallowed day? I'm a border person. Let me explain what I mean by that. I was born in 1954 when segregation was the law of the land in America's South. The year that the US Supreme Court ruled unanimously that racial segregation is, cons- is unconstitutional. In 1967, my family moved from Pennsylvania to Virginia. And despite that Supreme Court ruling, it was not until 1967 that integration finally made its way to the commonwealth schools. Changing the structure of separate but equal was not a welcome proposition. Tensions were high, and arriving as a new student at that historic moment was a jarring experience, one that left its imprint on my life. In 1984, I married into the African-American family of my husband, Richard Timpson. As a white woman married to a black man, raising two children of color, I've taken up residence on the border. I must confess, as I moved there, I was imbued with a kind of, oh, it's no big deal, all people are the same, sort of idealism, which quickly disintegrated the more I came to realize the reality that, in fact, all people are not treated the same, and its crushing effects. Over the years, the Timpson at fa- Timpson family gatherings and weddings and funerals, I've had the honor of hearing family stories of not being treated the same. Stories which are rarely told outside of a safe circle of love. Richard and I have two grown children. Will is 23 and Lillian 21. In our household, I'm the only person who does not identify as a person of color. At our kitchen table, We struggle to understand the landscape and meaning of race in America by sharing and comparing our experiences and our understandings. I must say, Will and Richard and Lillian have been patient, loving teachers. For I can be a dense student. Though I still have much to grasp, I've managed to learn a few things from my family and the anti-racism trainings I've attended over the years. Today I wanna share a bit of what I've learned. As the Sunday School Director and an educator, I often use mnemonics, and therefore I offer you ABC. Three things to consider when building relationships across borders of race and culture. How we might embrace Being aware, being brave, and being curious, A, B, C. A, be aware. Be aware of your baggage. If you are, like me, a white person, a person of Caucasian descent, be aware that you carry, as Peggy McIntosh of Wellesley College describes, An invisible knapsack of white privilege. In the knapsack, we have what she describes as an invisible package of unearned assets. Even if we don't want this knapsack, or even if we didn't ask for it, we have it nonetheless. And it accords us access and privileges not necessarily accorded to people of color. So, when a person of color experiences a situation as racist, and I question whether the situation warrants being labeled as racist, I remember my backpack. I remember that the life experience of a person of color is different than mine, and sometimes in very profound ways, in ways of not being treated the same. People of color don't carry my weightless, invisible knapsack of privilege, nor do they have access to its contents. I think they do carry an invisible backpack, too, one that is heavy, weighted down, with experiences of being followed in stores, stopped by the police, questioned, talked over, ignored, or called racial slurs simply because of skin color or country of origin. If you are the white parent of a child of color, be aware that your invisible knapsack of privilege does not automatically convey to your child of color. That your child may carry his or her own backpack weighted down with painful experiences that occur while unprotected by your presence out in the world. If you are a person of color please be aware that we, and I'm referring to white people like me, we don't usually realize that we carry this invisible knapsack of privilege. Understand that we are sometimes dense. As a parent be aware of what you are packing into your child's baggage of life. You are your child's first teacher. You are their primary model of how to engage with the world. Be aware that children carefully observe everything we do and draw conclusions from what they see. Who you speak to or don't speak to in the grocery store, who you greet or who you do not greet when walking down the street, in which neighborhoods you do or don't lock your car doors, the people you do or don't invite to your table will be noted on your child's packing list of life. So now let's get to B. B is be brave. Building relationships across borders is not for the faint of heart. It takes a certain braveness to extend oneself into the unfamiliar terrain of another race or culture. To risk one's comfort in order to make a connection and establish a relationship. So when we wade into the water of cross-racial or cross-cultural relationships, we've got to be brave. Brave enough to make mistakes. Like the time I was chatting with Augusta, an African-American friend at the gym. In the course of the conversation, I said, you go, girl. Immediately, however, I knew from Augusta's chilly response that something was amiss. Did I say something wrong? I knew in my gut I had, but I didn't know what. Upon reflection, I realized I had called her girl the word girl is used to express friendship between white women and which and when i used that word i used it to e- express my budding friendship with her augusta likely received that word with a sting because I hadn't considered how this word, this innocuous word, had been used to express domination, ownership. I really hadn't thought about how that word might sound through the life experience of an African American woman. When I took the risk and checked it out with Augusta, We had a rich conversation, which deepened our friendship. So now we get to see. Be curious. If you attempt to establish cross-cultural or cross-racial relationships, you are likely to find yourself in similarly confusing, confounding situations. Engage your curiosity. Suspend your need to be right, your need to be the expert. Become the student. Ask questions, lots of questions, and then listen. Listen deeply with your heart and mind wide open. Find a person you can trust and with whom you can have open conversations about race. Sit at the kitchen table. Be aware, be brave, be curious, and share and compare your experiences, understandings, and common humanity as you unpack your backpacks together.
0: I wanna really thank all three of our speakers this morning for sharing your stories and your journey and wisdom with us. As I prepared for this platform, one thing that kept coming back to me from the 40 ways to raise a non-racist child from a book called Nurture Shock that was lent to me by a West member, and from the stories shared this morning, was the importance of talking, of talking openly and often about race, answering our children's questions and our own questions. It takes, as Peggy said, bravery to have these conversations, and as a white person, I know I have the privilege to avoid them, to pretend racism doesn't exist around me. But as a white person and as a parent of a white child, I also know I have a responsibility to have those conversations, to help my child name what she does see around her. My reading, especially from Nurture Shock and my experience increasingly convinces me that our hope for colorblindness doesn't work, that children aren't colorblind, naturally, that our society certainly doesn't encourage that. So it is our responsibility to talk To help our children understand our own values and to encourage them as they form their own, as they take their own stands as anti-racist advocates in our society. Even putting children in diverse environments doesn't do the trick, it seems. We have to speak openly and frequently to children as young as two and three about skin color, ethnic differences, and our values. We have to continually reinforce what we believe, what we think is right. And actually, that might be good advice for all of us and not just with children. If we want to be anti-racist advocates in our community, we need to speak up. We need to talk with each other. We need to remember the dream and share the dream. And then we need to live it.